traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Parts of Europe were among the first places hit by COVID-19 as it began to spread early last year. But the economic fallout of the pandemic on the old continent has been starkly unequal. The recovery risks being even more so. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, Deputy Digital Editor at The Economist. And also coming up on today's show, what lessons can the tourism industry learn from the cruise sector? as ships prepare to set sail again after almost a year in the doldrums. You know, we had a a huge burn rate with no revenue, but the fundamentals are still there. And what lies behind Bitcoin's gyrations? Is crypto a financial world unto itself? Two and a half trillion is a lot of money. And when you make 40% peak to trough losses, those are real dollars. But first, after staggering through multiple waves of COVID-19, Europe's economy may finally be finding its feet. After a stuttering start, its vaccination drive is picking up. And by the end of June, all adults should be eligible for their first jab. Lockdown restrictions are easing. Parisians are back brooding over coffee and croissant in their beloved cafes. Italians may now stay out until 11pm, having had to be home by 10 for months. Meanwhile, in Germany, businesses report optimism at a two-year high. The relief is widespread, but the recovery will be less so. Europe's recovery is well underway. Samaya Keynes is our Europe economics editor. The worry, though, is that it will be the wrong kind of recovery, that that it will be uneven, it'll be unequal, um, and that perhaps some inflation might come along with it. Let's start with the unevenness, Samir. Of course, there were big gaps between the economic strength of the EU's member states long before COVID-19. So to what extent has the pandemic made them worse? When the pandemic was hitting, there was a huge sense of dread that the pandemic seemed to be worst in places that were weakest before it hit. Say Germany, which had been doing relatively well before the crisis, it experienced a much gentler downturn than than other big economies. So there was something like a a 5% fall in GDP last year. Uh, and that compared to a drop of 8 to 10% in countries like France, Italy and Spain. If you look at the changes in household consumption, they really, really felt it. So between the final quarter of 2019 and, and the second quarter of 2020, Spain's household consumption fell by 30%. That is that is huge. Uh, Italy's fell by 20%. 
In Germany, it fell by only 11%. And there are various reasons for that. One is that those economies that went into it weak were more constrained in terms of their fiscal response, how much they could prime the pump, get cash into the economy to, to blunt the effects of the pandemic. But it was also partly because of the different structure of those economies. German has a strong industrial base, whereas economies like Spain, for example, are much more dependent on tourism. And what's happening a year on? Are the economies that really suffered still doing worse? Huge caveat to any kind of right now Europe economy analysis, which is the official data comes out with a huge delay. So really, you have to look at other high frequency indicators, uh, some of which have partial coverage. And, and it really does depend on which data you look at. So for example, you've got the Google mobility data that shows essentially the extent to which people are moving around. And actually, Italy and in Spain, if you look at mobility in, in, in retail and recreation, they're actually closer to their pre-pandemic levels in terms of mobility than, say, Germany or, or even France. Now, other indicators aren't so rosy for the likes of Spain, say, jobs posting data from Indeed.com, which is a hiring platform, and, and also data describing new jobs from LinkedIn. They look pretty good for Italy, but frankly dire for, for Spain. They are nowhere near their, their pre-pandemic levels. Okay, so given that we know only roughly where we are, what can we say about where we're going? What should we be looking for? I mean, the biggest factor is in the in the very short term, how quickly all of the COVID-related restrictions end. Right now, governments are in the process of lifting them. Italy and Spain are slightly further ahead. That could be driving their faster recovery. But you really need, for example, travel, tourism, Tourism restrictions to end if you if you want to see a healthy rebound this summer for, for Italy, Spain, Portugal, France. Meanwhile, you've got Germany, its industrial boom is is going ahead. Uh, the main thing holding them back seems to be these supply chain bottlenecks that have emerged. So if what you're interested in is, is divergence or convergence, you need to be looking at, at those things. Right, that's the supply side. So what about the demand side? What are the key variables there? One thing that forecasters are looking at is the extent to which households are going to spend their sort of cash piles that they've been accumulating over the past year. Income was propped up by various government support schemes, but consumption fell really dramatically. And so the difference was essentially just money sitting in bank accounts. So if you look at the size of the accumulated stockpiles, they're slightly bigger as a share of disposable income in Italy and Spain than they are in, say, France and Germany. But obviously, the key thing is whether consumers actually want to spend them, right? If the if the economic outlook is still very uncertain, you might think as a precautionary measure, they might hold on to that, that cash. Uh, UBS, which is a bank, actually did a survey of people across Europe, and they found that Italians seem to be planning a spending spree, um, but Spaniards were very much not. So expect some, some divergence there. And what about the role of government? I mean, we've talked on Money Talks before about the EU's enormous next generation recovery fund which is very ambitious, but it's also very slow moving. Is that likely to help even out the inequalities in the European recovery? That recovery fund was designed to help with the inequalities. It was motivated by this fear that you would get further divergence. 
And if you look at the money that's been promised, it does look like it will deliver a bigger boost to the likes of Spain and Italy um, than, say, to Germany. A few caveats. One, the funds aren't going to be available for a little while. But more importantly, they may need to go further. Uh, If you look at the IMF forecasts, even with all of this fiscal support, it still looks like the growth forecasts were downgraded by more the southern European economies than the the German and, and the Nordic economies. So that suggests that perhaps there may be a need to go further to deliver more fiscal support. In America right now, the big concern is that the size of pandemic stimulus is going to cause inflation. Now, if you look at Europe, you've got supply bottlenecks, you've got pent up savings, you've got government stimulus. Do the same concerns also apply on the other side of the Atlantic? You are hearing a bit of chatter about inflation. I think there are various economists in Europe who've seen the debate in America, who've seen, say, Larry Summers uh, accuse the Americans of going too far. And they've said, aha, let's not have that happen in Europe. I think the recent inflation outturn in Germany was a figure of 2.1%. That is the highest since 2019. And by the end of this year, they're forecasting that that could rise to as as much as 4% in Germany. That's the highest it's been for a long time in Germany and would, would be a big deal. I would say, however, that they really need to chill out. A lot of that, as in America, reflects temporary factors. So you've got oil price falls, you've got there's a change in, in taxes that's that's mucking the numbers up. Um, you have these bottlenecks. But if you look at the underlying price pressures, there is just no sign of, of overheating across the euro area. Uh, if you look at the amount of spare capacity in some of these economies, it's just enormous. And to the extent that this is a worry in Germany... I think the thing to do is remind the worriers that Germany isn't a currency union. It is doing better than other members of the euro area. It has done better than them. And in that situation, it makes sense for German inflation to rise above that of other members. It makes sense for the rebalancing of that group. So everyone should calm down a bit because the risk, of course, is that There's a repeat of what happened after the sovereign debt crisis, the financial crisis, when essentially there was just never enough action to regain the pre-crisis economic strength that Europe needed. And so essentially the Eurozone went into the pandemic not in full health. For For the good of the people of Europe, it really should be. So once again, the risk is that European policymakers will end up worrying about the wrong thing. Exactly. Samaya Keynes, thank you very much. Thank you. For much more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. This week's edition includes a detailed special report looking at race and inequality in America. A year after the murder of George Floyd sparked a global reckoning, how much has changed? You can also read about why it's proving so difficult to put effective sanctions on Belarus for its forced diversion of a Ryanair plane to arrest an opposition journalist. And you can follow our assessment of ExxonMobil's latest battle with climate activists. Will the Texan Titan finally be forced to change its ways? For all that and more, subscribe at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. You can also find a link in the notes for this episode. 
pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Next, before the pandemic, each year nearly 30 million people took holidays aboard cruise ships. According to Cruise Lines International, its trade association, the industry was responsible for over a million jobs, half of them based in America, and over $150 billion of annual economic output. But after several instances of ships being hotspots for contagion early in the pandemic, the entire industry decided to return to port. Our industry editor, Simon Wright, interviewed Arnold Donald, chief executive of Carnival Corporation, whose nine brands, including Cunard, Princess and P&O, together carry almost half the world's cruise passengers. We have begun to sail on a very selective basis, um, informed by world-renowned medical experts. Uh, we came up with protocols, uh, universal testing, enhanced medical screening, physical distancing, mask wearing, uh, that allow us to sail safely uh, in Europe during the pandemic on a very limited basis, a few ships, not at full occupancy, but successfully. The industry, in fact, sailed over 400,000 people during that time with fewer than 50 cases of COVID uh, on board, showing that the cruise industry was able to safely cruise despite the fact there was a pandemic. You talk about the, that part of the industry. The biggest part of the industry is the U.S. Most cruise passengers, around about half, come from the, from the U.S., We've seen some disputes, for example, in Florida, the home port of Royal Caribbean, which has threatened to shift because of a dispute about asking for vaccination certificates. Do you see the sort of thicket of national regulations as one of the biggest difficulties in restarting your operations? So there are a lot of destinations and we go to 700 around the world. So sure, it's complex, but, but that's our business and, and we have to be responsive wherever we go. So we're today very optimistic about starting up soon after a long and torturous path in the U.S. at various ports around the U.S. In fact, we've announced three of our brands, Princess, Holland America, and Carnival, have announced sailings to Alaska starting in July. We've announced sailings around the world for eight of our nine brands, um, uh, starting out in, in Greece and Italy, uh, Germany, a few other places, and then in the Caribbean. So. Each one has its own dynamics, depending what destination you're going to, what's required there, what the state of community spread is in those communities and so on. But our intent is always to serve the best interests of public health and to make certain that our guests are safe and our crew is safe and that the people in the communities that we touch and serve are safe. We've talked about the U.S. being the sort of heartland of cruising, but Growth in tourism is strongest in China and Southeast Asia. These are the sort of emerging markets where the sort of a new middle class are wanting to travel the world. Is cruising catching on with customers over there? And do you have to do anything different to attract customers from those, those new markets? Of course, the markets you reference, like China, someday will probably be larger than the cruise industry is today. And the Chinese are very much similar to everybody else. I mean, they, they want experiences. So we've partnered with CSSC, the largest shipbuilding entity in China. 
will have the first ship built in China, cruise ship built in China, through our joint venture in probably 2023. Uh, we already have a couple of ships in the joint venture sailing now that uh, were not built in China, but are purposed um, for the Chinese market. Uh, and once um, cruise restarts, we'll be well positioned to participate and, and frankly, throughout joint venture to lead the growth in cruising in China. But frankly, there's still opportunity to further penetrate the U.S., the U.K., continental Europe, Latin America, et cetera, because um, keep in mind, Simon, we are capacity constrained. There's only so many shipyards. Unlike a lot of industries, we can't double capacity overnight. The fastest the cruise industry can grow in a given year is single digits. So we have growth opportunity in every market. Your optimism also seems to be shared by investors in the industry. I mean, the big three of the ocean waves, yourself, Royal Caribbean and Norwegian, have managed to pile on debt uh, over the last year in your efforts to shore up balance sheets. I read that you've raised nearly $24 billion from debt and equity investors in the last 12 months. $23.6 billion. I mean, this is going to impact profits for years to come, presumably. Yeah, look, it's, um, uh, it was costly debt uh, that we raised, but we're back in the markets now refinancing. But it was necessary. You know, we had a, a huge burn rate with no revenue, but the fundamentals are still there. So it was an amazing experience uh, through 14 transactions to raise that kind of capital with nobody in an office. And now our objective is to maximize cash generation and return to the great credit rating levels that we had before, which allowed us to survive this and create value for our shareholders. I look at the travel industry, but I also cover the shipping industry as part of my job. And the word sustainability is never far from anyone's lips these days. Companies are looking at new technology with hydrogen perhaps being one of the front runners to power large ocean going vessels in the future. How important is it that cruising gets greener? It's very important to us. It's our highest responsibility and we take it very seriously. Um, we have signed on to you know the zero emission by 2050 in the interim. Uh, we've done a host of things, including being the first to have liquefied natural gas, which doesn't get you to zero emissions, but dramatically reduces you know, the level of emissions. So we invested in LNG ships when there was no LNG infrastructure. When we started building those ships, we weren't even sure exactly what itineraries we could go on the few. Over 40% of our fleet can plug in on shore power once they're in, in shore so that they can use alternative energy sources shoreside. We are experimenting with, you know, biofuels. We're looking at fuel cell technologies. We're also looking at lithium-ion battery technologies to further enhance. We're constantly fine-tuning our engines to make them more efficient. We developed advanced air quality systems. Um, some people call them scrubbers. You know, we partnered with a company and created them, and we're going to continue to work towards zero emissions over time. Another area of sustainability is the issue of over-tourism. Venice, for example, instituting a ban on cruise ships. Dubrovnik is putting a cap on the number that, that can arrive. These are examples of places that are sort of turning ag against cruise ships. Do you think this is a trend that will continue? And what can you do to improve matters? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, especially like take Dubrovnik. Uh, we met with the mayor you know, a few years ago, and, and he was very encouraging to the cruise industry. Actually, wants more, more cruise. But he was saying, look, if you could work with me, because Old Town is, is just being overwhelmed. All the ships arrived around the same time. So all the guests get off. And then there's this big surge going in. And, and then there's a big surge going out at the same time. 
as the ships all leaving at the same time. So as an industry, we got together and, and agreed to stagger the arrival of ships. Now, the practical reality is we represent a small fraction of the number of people in, in Old Town generally. Same thing in Venice. There may be 24 plus million visitors to Venice a year, maybe a million and a half in cruise. Having said all that, look, these are people's homes. Our guests only want to go where they're welcome. And so our attitude is to work with the locals in a way where, you know, they want to welcome the visitors. There's no doubt that cruise shipping has been one of tourism's great success stories. And in recent years, the, the, the growth in passengers has gone alongside the growth in international tourism, which has also grown very quickly. Can you give me reasons why cruising has done so well? And when the, will that rate of growth return, do you think? We're probably, in most places, the best vacation value there is. And we're a great vacation experience. Where else can you go to bed at night and wake up every morning in a different, new, exciting place? We have crew from 145 countries, guests from 190 countries, and we bring people together. Throughout this pause, we've still had very robust bookings. Bookings out in the 22 at the higher end of the range of historical booking trends. So we're not worried about demand. We do need to be able to access the destinations and do it in a way that serves the best interest of public health, and we feel very capable of doing that. Mr. Donald, you may well have won me over. Thank you very, very much for your time today. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. Very much appreciate it. And finally, in the first few months of this year, cryptocurrencies, most obviously Bitcoin, were on a tear. Crypto markets capitalization peaked at around two and a half trillion dollars in early May, and then they crashed, losing about a trillion. They since steadied a bit, but in the few hours between recording and publishing this podcast, well, who knows what gyrations might be in store. Still, we took a chance and asked our Buttonwood columnist, John O'Sullivan, to make sense of it all. Well, the immediate triggers, well, there's a couple of them that people are pointing to. One is the, the interventions of Elon Musk, the CEO and founder of Tesla, who added to its upward momentum when he, he said that not only did Tesla hold some Bitcoin as part of its corporate treasury, but it would accept Bitcoin for transactions. He then tweeted in mid-May that this was no longer the case, that because of the concerns about carbon emissions that are caused by the computational effort in mining new Bitcoin, he was a bit more circumspect about the currency. That seems to have started its sort of big crash. Uh, it got some extra momentum when China's Chinese regulators announced that it, they were cracking down on Bitcoin mining, again, in part for reasons of greenery, but also that they would be cracking down on its use within China for reasons of financial stability. The rally in recent days has really been sort of partly Elon Musk making more friendly noises about it and some others saying it's still a sort of viable alternative to sort of fiat currencies. So those are the immediate triggers. What's going on beneath that? As much as I admire Elon Musk, I sort of be amazed if he had quite that much power over asset prices, although he is very influential and charismatic. I've seen an analysis from JP Morgan that has shown that there's been a lot of outflows from exchange-traded funds that, that hold Bitcoin. 
and a lot of money has been going back into gold, physical gold. Remember, people think about Bitcoin as digital gold because of its scarcity and because of its billing as an alternative to fiat money currencies. What seems to be going underneath all this is, is a shift of institutional money, and by institutions I mean people who invest big pools of money on behalf of other people, uh, out of Bitcoin, which has been obviously got very expensive, and into gold, which had actually been cheapening a bit. And that's interesting because Bitcoin, when I read about it, I've, I sometimes feel as if I'm reading about a different investing universe, except for this connection you sometimes read about with gold. But are there any broader implications for, for other asset markets of these wild swings we're seeing? Well, I think it's been a little bit surprising that there have been surprisingly few sort of contagion effects into other asset prices. Stocks are generally close to their sort of record highs. Um, credit spreads are, are pretty tight, as tight as they've almost ever been, but they've moved maybe five or ten basis points, but nothing really major. Government bonds haven't done anything to make you feel that people are more frightened than they were. There's plenty of explanations, some of them not entirely convincing, but it really goes to the point that you made, Patrick, which is there's the sense that the world of crypto is an entirely different world. Uh, that's one sort of explanation. Another is that perhaps we, we really don't know who's holding Bitcoin with any great degree of accuracy. It may be that people have been along for the ride. And yes, they've got a mark to market loss of $20,000 relative to the to the peak. But if they've been holding it for a year or more, they're still very much in the money. So easy go, but it was easy come in the, in the first place. And just generally, the, the, the economic backdrop is one in which the economy is picking up, particularly in America. Household balance sheets are looking pretty strong. House prices are going up. So other assets are looking pretty perky. So if you've lost a bit on your crypto portfolio, then ah, so be it. Along with the idea that crypto is a completely separate world, is also the idea that it doesn't really matter very much, that this is just something that the kids do. And it's really rather big now, isn't it? Yeah. The sort of nagging worry I have is that crypto is now a pretty big asset class. At its peak, it reached about two and a half trillion dollars. That's a big chunk of money. That's probably bigger than the junk bond market. And so when it falls the order of 40% and you know a, a trillion dollars goes missing, I find it a little bit hard to, to believe that there won't be some kind of knock-on effect from that. So it could yet be significant for the wider financial scene? Yeah, it might well be. And it, again, it's very difficult to build a bridge from the crypto world into the sort of mainstream world of investing. But you know, two and a half trillion is a lot of money. And when you make 40% peak to trough losses, you know, those are real dollars. Now, of course, crypto is so volatile. And, you know, one of the reasons why I think people aren't so worried about it is this is the third big crash in, in the space of four years. So everyone kind of shrugs their shoulders and go, well, that's crypto for you. And of course, it's going back up again. And who knows, um, we might be talking on a on a podcast in a year's time going, gee, we missed the chance to buy this at $40,000. But there's another way of thinking about cryptocurrencies, which is the sort of purest indication of kind of sentiment about investment assets more generally. It's one of the more speculative assets. And so when it goes up, it tells you something about how bullish investors are feeling more generally. And when it goes down... I can't help feeling that's a signal that people are going to be nervous about riskier assets more generally. And I think the test will be if 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 crypto stays where it is or goes down a bit further, how resilient the markets will, will prove to be in the coming weeks. John O'Sullivan, thank you very much. 
Thank you. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate us or better yet, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. The editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Patrick Lane. And in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.